0: From Loyola University, Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. And join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. My name is Lenny Reinhardt, and we are continuing our discussion on rural access to justice by returning to Michigan's Upper Peninsula and the 11th Judicial Circuit with Judge Brian Rahali. Judge Rahali's circuit covers four counties within the UP, and he provides a valuable perspective as we continue to explore the attorney shortage in rural America. Throughout this project, we've been focusing on uh, people in rural areas across the country. And when we think of rural areas, we think of places like you know, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, all across you know, the South. And one place that sort of exemplifies that rural community is the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Um, if you could, please, could you describe the 11th Judicial Circuit and the people that live inside there?
1: So the 11th Judicial Circuit actually encompasses four counties. So um, there's Loose County, which is where I live. Then there's Mackinac County, uh, Schoolcraft County, and Alger County. And um, the most populous county is uh, of the four is Mackinac County. Uh, it's approximately probably 12 to 13,000 people uh, in loose county, we're probably just under 6,000 people. And we're uh, pretty rural. Uh, the biggest, uh, you know, the the big urban areas, as you would say, in these counties uh, are are towns of about 1500 people. And it's it's the biggest judicial circuit that I'm aware of. I think I've heard that it's the the biggest judicial circuit east of the Mississippi. Uh, And we're talking about a very rural, typically very uh, long winters, and uh, communities or economies really driven by tourism.
0: Okay, and you mentioned Mackinac County. I would be remiss if I didn't mention Mackinac Island in their world-famous fudge. Um, So in these four counties, I did some math earlier, and it looks like there's about 11,000 square miles and in that broad area, there's only 24,000 individuals that live there. And about 10,000 of those, 10, 11,000 of those folks live in Mackinac County. Um, you said that you're from Luce County. Can you uh, describe, I guess, give us your background and how you grew up and how you got interested in the law?
1: Sure, so I, uh, I grew up in Newberry, which is the, the, the seat of Luce County. Uh, and that's where I currently live. Um, I graduated from the the local high school there in in, in the year 2001, went on to uh, uh, college and then law school. I went to law school at uh, Cooley Law School in Lansing, graduated from there in 2010, moved back to my hometown and uh, started a small town law practice, practiced for 10 years. Uh, the, The judicial, the 11th Circuit judgeship was coming open due to retirement. And decided to throw my hat in the ring, and that's how I was elected. My undergraduate degree is in history and journalism. Um, really, my love for history kind of steered me towards looking at law school. It uh, wasn't something that I set out, you know, during my college years to go to law school. It really just kind of fell into my lap as a something I thought I'd be interested in, something I thought I'd be pretty good at. And it, it it worked out great for me because I loved law school and loved being a lawyer. And so far, my first three months as a judge have been very rewarding.
0: And you mentioned uh, the recent ascension to to the bench. Uh, you, you were, we're based in Chicago down here. So the environment, the atmosphere when it comes to a judicial election, I'm sure is much different than it is in more of a rural setting. Uh, can you walk us through how that might differ uh, as far as, you know, just someone that's looking at it from our perspective?
1: Uh, I suppose there's absolutely almost zero media coverage of the election. Uh, You basically have to go out and find your own media coverage. Uh, Certainly through the, uh, during this, this past election uh, due to the pandemic, it brought even more, uh, more challenges you know, usually you'd be looking at going to you know these summer festivals, these fall festivals, these uh, sort of big gatherings to try to meet and greet people. And of course, that didn't happen this year. So, you know, I, I think you know trying to reach out to people via social media, uh, which is certainly probably not something different than what would happen in a bigger city, was crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, But I don't think, you know, you probably don't have as much access. People around you. We have a much older population, too. So they're not as familiar with the social media. Uh, You know, people are still getting their uh, weekly newspapers. They're still getting, um, you know, still listening to the morning news on the radio, still listening to or still watching the local news on their TV. And so it, it created a lot of problems. And I mean, one of our big strategies during our election was we, we, we went out to all these small townships uh, Mm -hmm. in these small township meetings where there would be maybe 12 15 people and we just you know hit all these different township meetings to get the word out um and then we did some some mailers uh and then traditional newspaper ads and then towards the end of my campaign uh i was a little nervous so i i did actually buy some tv time but uh you know, we were successful. We we won pretty resounding. We had a pretty resounding victory. So,
0: mm-hmm. now you mentioned um, something there uh, as far as the pandemic and how it impacted just just a typical election cycle. Um, when you think of, like well, you say, our topic as far as rural access to justice, what have you seen uh, from your perspective as far as other impacts that the pandemic has had in more of that rural environment?
1: Well, I think, like I said. Like I said before, um, with our lo- a lot of our local economies relying on tourism, really a lot of our our lot of our local businesses took a big big hit during the pandemic because we didn't have the tourism that we normally would. Um, particularly this winter, our local area is really really geared in the winter towards snowmobiling, mm-hmm. and um, for much of this year, even in 2021, you know, restaurants, bars, that kind of stuff. Was shut down, uh, and those businesses heavily rely on the snowmobile business and the other tourism business. Um, from a court perspective, we haven't been able to have large gatherings, which means you're not able to do jury trials. Mm-hmm. Which means criminal defendants have been waiting a long time to have a jury trial. Uh, this week, starting yesterday, we had our first jury trial in the Eleventh Circuit since before the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, which you know we. Pretty much, say since last March, um, and to do that, you know, typically we would call 80 to 100 potential jurors into our courtroom, uh, proceed with jury selection. We had to make alternatives. We had to go to the local American Legion hall, which is much bigger, mm-hmm. more spaced out, so each person could sort of have their, you know, six foot distance. And, and obviously, during uh, all the all that procedure, we had to be maxed and. That, that certainly created and has created and it's going to continue to create obstacles um because you know you have people criminal defendants mm-hmm. and, and to to be fair i was a criminal defense attorney for my during my practice years mm-hmm. criminal defendants that are um you know some are incarcerated during this whole time right and they have a right to a speedy trial it doesn't say a right to a speedy trial except during a pandemic, it it you know it's an absolute right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so it's it's created a not only per, you know uh, practical issues but legal issues as well. Right.
0: Now, in our previous episode, we talked to another practitioner who uh, he was mostly focused in areas such as uh, personal injury, workman's compensation, and more of this more civil matters. And you mentioned that your primary background was in more criminal justice matters. And so when you think of challenges that you've encountered as far as uh, litigating a criminal justice type case, how does the rural environment impact your ability to uh, handle a case like that?
1: Uh, do you, are you referring to when we were consideration of the pandemic?
0: Both, if if you if you, even if you're able to draw sort of some comparisons between the two, both before and currently, just to see how that might compare to someone that is operating in you know in, in an environment that has more resources like Chicago or Detroit.
1: So I, I guess one of the big resources a bigger area like Chicago would have is, is is more attorneys, and I think that's a lot of probably what we'll be talking about today is we prior to the pandemic. A normal day for myself as a criminal defense attorney, and really as a general practice attorney, but really doing a lot of criminal defense. And a normal day for a lot of the local attorneys is uh, courthouse hopping or what we call riding the circuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you start, you start uh, your day perhaps in Newberry, jump in your car and drive an hour to Munising and then you may find yourself in a third or even a fourth courtroom. Um, I've certainly had days where I was in all four courthouses of the circuit, or in some of the neighboring courthouses in the different circuits. So that that's typical because there's just a lack of attorneys in each community. So, you know, Lewis County attorneys are handling Aldrich County cases. Aldrich County cases are, attorneys are also handling Lewis County cases. Mm-hmm.
0: Um and again for for those they, that might not be familiar with with that sort of that phrasing like in, in Chicago for example we have the Cook County Public Defender's Office which is you know right. dedicated to uh criminal matters for indigent defendants. So can you explore what that looks like in uh, those counties up there?
1: So um for the longest time for the first 8 years or so of my practice uh it was basically Indigent defense was essentially controlled by the courts. And a, uh, you know, a defendant, indigent defendant would request counsel. The court would appoint based on a rotating, you know, rotating list. Counsel would be paid $40 an hour, which, considering all the uh, dollars it costs to run a law office, $40 an hour is basically, you're basically essentially losing money. Mm -hmm. So you really have this difficulty of getting people to do it, although, when I say people attorneys to do it, although most of us attorneys felt we had an obligation to help out because otherwise, if you won't do it, nobody's gonna do it. So Uh we had this struggle. Uh, Thankfully, um, the legislature here in Michigan did pass the Michigan Indigent Defense Commission, which has vastly improved indigent defense in in the state and locally. Locally, now what happens, at least in Lewis County and Schoolcraft County, is you essentially have an administrator of this indigent defense commission locally. And when someone requests counsel because they're indigent, uh, they do this commissioner, this administrator appoints somebody. Um, and these attorneys are now getting paid a much better wage. Mm-hmm. So you have you saw this rotational sort of system where depending on who's kind of next in the rotation um, is probably who you, you know your your counsel will be. Uh, Alger County uh, has moved to a more public defender office. Okay. But there's only but there's only one attorney in that office. So right. if there is if there's overflow or conflicts, then then another outside attorney's uh, appointed through that commission. Uh, the goal is to really get that uh, these appointments to, not to have the courts involved, because it creates sort of this uh, uh, bias—not bias, but it could create the. You know, the courts are appointing attorneys; it, it's probably not as fair to the defendant as uh, just a, a neutral third-party administrator doing that.
0: Right now, when you think about, uh, you briefly touched on the number of attorneys that uh serve those areas uh, how many individuals that have th- their practices you know focused on criminal defense how many different firms like that are there in those four counties
1: so um none of the firms focus only on criminal defense but most of them most of them are solo practitioners mhm And most, at least some portion of their practice is devoted to criminal criminal uh, defense. In Luce County, prior to my becoming a judge, there was two, now there's one.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, In Alger County, I can think of three attorneys that may dabble in criminal uh, defense. Uh, In Schoolcraft County, There is uh, one, I believe, that does criminal defense. Uh And in Mackinac County, the only private practicing attorney in Mackinac County that I'm aware of is a three-person father-son-daughter firm, and they do zero criminal defense. They do only civil work. So you're talking about a very low number
0: right so um, doing the math i mean that's about five people that to cover that that broad of an area and so what impact does that have on i mean just in general a individual's ability to get competent representation for some of these criminal matters uh well
1: if if you have a you know let's just say you have a very complicated extensive case um a lot of the small sole practitioners it's just not something they can maintain they can't uh they can't do it they can't set aside that amount of time uh to work on a one case when it's just them you know so you're looking at having to typically travel uh at least 100 miles to find a what we you know a firm where there's mm-hmm. multiple attorneys available in one firm to work on a case, and obviously that doesn't always come cheap.
0: Now, does that come into for the attorneys that do take that on? Do they run the risk of some sort of ethical issues as far as uh, you know ineffective assistance of counsel, things like that? Like, is that a concern that some of these attorneys have when faced with a case like that?
1: I don't think so. I mean, I, most of the attorneys around here are at least experienced and they know, um, when a case may be too big to take okay. on. And they'll say that, I mean, I, as when I was a criminal defense taken court appointed, I, I took on some pretty big cases. Mm-hmm. It, it never felt like I wasn't effective, but it, it can be very stressful when you're working alone um, right. on a case.
0: Now, on the flip side of, you know, the other side of this coin, when we talk about the different, you know, the prosecutors or are district attorneys uh, for these different um, or the state's attorneys for these different counties, do they run into the same sort of issues as far as personnel or resources uh, when they take on a case like this?
1: Of course. So, um, you know, each each uh, each county has an elected prosecuting attorney. Um, Mackinac County is the only county that has one assistant prosecuting attorney. So each other county, the elected prosecutor does all the prosecution. Um, where in a big county like, you know, or in Chicago, the elected official, elected prosecutor probably doesn't prosecute any cases. They're more of a figurehead probably. Right. So here, you know, if you're elected prosecutor, you're, you're going to be in the courtroom every day prosecuting case.
0: And that's everything from misdemeanors to felonies. There isn't somebody else to take on correct some of the other cases They have it from start to
1: finish. Yeah, you're you're prosecuting dog stray to murders.
0: Right. So as as judge now, uh, to put it in context, how long have you been on the bench?
1: So I was elected in November. I took over January one.
0: Okay. So you've had, you know, good almost four months in this pandemic setting. So when you, when you consider the things that you've seen in your, in your own personal practice, when you were, had your own firm, uh, did you see things at that point um, that were indicative of, Hey, look, there's, there's an attorney shortage. There's a resource shortage. Was that something that was apparent to you? Or was that just, Hey, that's the norm. That's just the way things operate.
1: No, it's, it was absolutely apparent to me, and um, I, in fact, on my own, tried to recruit attorneys to come up here, knowing that I could be a come judge and would leave our county even more shorthanded, mm-hmm. um, and so it was absolutely something. Um, in fact, I, uh, I participated in a roundtable discussion that the uh, Michigan Indian Defense Commission put on in December, uh, trying to recruit people to come up and it's it, it and it's not just for criminal defense either i mean we have you know people need civil attorneys too um for for simple things you know just just to do a, a land sale which i did a lot of in my practice um and without that there's just nobody in loose county or the surrounding counties to do that sort of thing uh so it's, it's it's been on my radar for some time i mean frankly it was on my radar When I decided to open my my practice, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. I saw, I saw, you know, I don't think many, many people, many lawyers coming out of law school don't really see themselves opening their own practice, but I saw the opportunity here because there was such a lack of attorneys and the attorneys that were still around here at that time were, were uh, essentially in retirement age and they've all since retired. There was three or four mainstays in the area at that time. And they all pretty much retired within a year or two of me coming around. Um, And really that's why I moved back to where I was from is because I saw that.
0: So the earlier, when we were leading up to this interview, we, uh, I sent you some numbers and there's some numbers that we've discussed as far as um, the attorneys that are, in that area and the numbers that i originally researched that were available through the michigan state bar that showed that loose county it's still not a huge number but you know it said they had eight attorneys and you're quick to note that that's now down to one um, and throughout all of these counties in the upper peninsula uh, i mean the numbers range from you know from as few as 5 in kewana county all the way up to you know marquette has 144 attorneys but these are the numbers that are made available by the State Bar Association. So is that, when people look at these numbers and they try to assess the situation, even though these numbers, they're they're hardly inflated, but at the same point, they are to the extent that these aren't accurate numbers. So when the state looks at this, is there anything that the State Bar Association has said or done so that they at least acknowledge that this issue exists?
1: You know, not that I'm aware of, other than, like I said, I participated in a roundtable discussion with the Michigan Indigent Indigent Defense Commission, which isn't associated with the State Bar at all, but um, nothing that that comes to mind that the State Bar has done to try to um, sort of uh, help the issue. and I think, you know, when you look, if you, you know, you do a, a search on the State Bar website, you, you type in Loose County, you, you're probably going to get eight names. Three of them are probably retired. Two of them are probably judges. You know, one uh, attorney lives here, but I know he works uh, in the prosecutor's office over in Chippewa County. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, the numbers certainly aren't, aren't, aren't reflective of the legal services that are available in our community
0: so as as judge there, what does your experiences do those come into play when you when you handle a case, when something gets brought to your attention? Does that impact the way that a courtroom proceeding might go on?
1: Yeah, I think so because I'm a I think I'm a little more mindful of, you know what the attorneys standing before me are going through you know maybe they're a little late for the hearing but it's because they were in a courtroom an hour away that ran 15 minutes longer than it was supposed to um or you know i was in a i've been in a trial then i had to go across the way and participate in a zoom hearing you know you know the the balance and the cases they're trying to 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 handle and especially right now with a lot of these you know trials and bigger cases being on hold you know they're being just drawn in so many different directions you 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 certainly are mindful of that and mindful that they they may not be as concerned with the the pre-trial hearing that is before me right because they've got 10 other cases they've got to get to okay i got you
0: um now when When you think about, you know, the cases that they're handling, I mean, it just, it goes to show that there's going to be issues as far as being able to conduct a thorough investigation on the defense's part as well, correct? Yes. And so from that vantage point, could you, could there potentially be some sort of constitutional issues as far as being able to present a defense?
1: Potentially, yes, absolutely. There's no doubt that if, if if it's apparent that there hasn't been a thorough investigation or there's other issues mm-hmm. uh, certainly the court's going to do what it can to give as much leeway as possible it, it, you know if more time is needed right uh, to do such things mm-hmm. um, understanding though the state Supreme Court's going to be on me to make sure my dockets are moving as well right uh, but but fr- but frankly speedy dockets are not my concern when someone's constitutional rights are at at issue you Mm -hmm. know if we need to take an extra couple months to do an investigation and it blows my timelines timelines that are created by you know state court administrators i i really i could care less Um, right um, i mean i know i be i may be uh graded downgraded for that or something um but frankly everyone's constitutional rights need to be protected right. and an extra 60 days doesn't concern me mm-hmm. Completely. Um, so so long as you know uh, obviously you got to balance the uh the interest if a person's incarcerated but right definitely um but i'm sure most defendants would rather more time be granted for adequate preparation versus you know not
0: mm-hmm. You you mentioned a few minutes ago, you mentioned Zoom, jumping on a Zoom call. We're communicating through Zoom right now. Uh, that's been sort of one of the suggested fixes to this issue as far as, hey, look, with this increase in technology, as the pandemic has shown us, you know, Zoom is an option. But can you tell me about how, you know, Specifically in the four counties that you serve, is that feasible as far as people's access to broadband or people's access to you know decent cell phone coverage? Does that come into
1: play? Yes, absolutely. Um, And just just you know, I guess the one one positive thing that's come out of the pandemic, perhaps, is our reliance on some of the Zoom technology and. It's helpful for attorneys when we're talking about um you know quick hearings pre-trial hearings things where there's not evidence presented uh those can be very beneficial instead of having to drive that that time uh you can simply appear and uh, conduct your pre-trial or argue a motion uh i don't really allow unless if evidence is being taken i don't really allow zoom but for anything else um I think Zoom is a good thing, mm-hmm. except for criminal pleas and criminal sentencing. I don't like to do them via Zoom either. But um, but there's a huge issue with cell phone coverage, broadband, um, making it difficult for clients or defendants or plaintiffs in civil actions to appear via Zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a absolutely a huge problem. Um, we don't have reliable cell phone coverage in many, many areas uh, of our circuit. It's getting better. It's gotten a lot better over the last ten years. Um, but uh, just, uh, just to let you know, like I, uh, uh, I'm about three miles outside of Newberry. I have great cell phone coverage, mm-hmm. but I can't get internet. So I'm, I'm using a hotspot mm-hmm. to have internet here off my cell phone, Uh, that it's just an issue. And I mean, it it was a huge issue when kids were doing remote schooling.
0: Right. Um, Yeah.
1: And it's going to, and I've, you know, I've heard for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, politicians stating they're going to emphasize, you know, creating more access for broadband in these areas. And it just has not happened. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like I said, it's getting better um uh you know cell towers are going up to allow better coverage but you have to weigh that against people don't want cell phone towers in their backyards because people come to the this area for the natural beauty so right um yeah. but it, it's just the way it, it, it's just the reality of things we need to continue to explore um expansion of cell phone coverage and broadband internet Mm -hmm. right Uh,
0: so another topic that was touched on in part one of the series was uh, as far as you know there's a local we'll, we'll call it a crisis a local crisis as far as a shortage of attorneys and with the way that technology has expanded over this you know, this last 12 months or so, you know, there's been a lot of places around the country that has gone to, you know, a virtual courtroom, virtual setting and for a large percentage of what they do. But one of the concerns that we discussed was how larger firms are using this as an opportunity to spread their their service area into more of the rural, the rural um, sections of the country. Now, on one hand, it's good because now there's some people that have more options when it comes to getting counsel, but the trade off is, you know, there's not the community connection. There's not the local ties that's important, especially when you consider a small town practice. So what uh, what perspective do you have as far as that trade off uh, from just your experience as a judge?
1: I think it's certainly important uh, to have that community connection with your, uh, you know, between the attorneys and and their clients. Uh, but I think there's there, there's opportunity um, to uh, the big firms don't need to compete with the little guys. They can work together to facilitate so that all parties, all people get you know the best possible legal service they can get. I mean, we we've always partnered, you know, even back, you know, with bigger firms to try to help people in the community. Um, so I think it's it's more of a it's certainly more of a positive than a negative, because I think um, there's always going to be a need for that local attorney. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not going away. Um, so I welcome the, the sort of what I think could be collaboration
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, between the bigger firms and some of these local uh, local attorneys. And I think it could create, uh, create business for local attorneys.
0: Right. Even something as simple as local filings, you would always have to have some sort of local representation there. Absolutely.
1: Or, uh, uh, you know, um, if you do have to have a, a motion hearing where it's requiring some evidence and some, where zoom is not appropriate, you know, you will mm-hmm. hire the local attorney to do it. I mean, I, I always supplemented my income as a private attorney, you know, covering some of those cases for the bigger firms, you know? Um, so I think there's always opportunity for that. Absolutely.
0: Uh, so finally we're, we're getting close to the end here, but one thing that uh, we as the Podvocate advocate have been focusing on a lot this year, uh, stemming back from last May and even, today with the trial of Derek Shelvin going on right now. Uh, we've been trying to approach this this year with you know a nod towards diversity, a nod towards you know how we can make our legal system better for everybody that's involved. And so one thing that's been brought up in some of the reading that I've been doing is you know there's almost there's almost an assumption that, these, you know, stereotypical local towns, local, you know, local attorneys, they all sort of fit the same sort of, you know, demographic, they're an older white male, for example. And so that has been discussed as a potential barrier, or a potential or something that might cause somebody that isn't of that demographic stature, to go seek out a position in a rural, in a more rural part of our country. And so I was just wondering if you had any perspectives as far as if there's a need for diversity in the rural area, if what you've seen in your, you know, both your private and as a judge, uh, what you can provide as far as that aspect of the conversation.
1: I mean, I'll be, I'll be frank and honest. There's not a whole lot of diversity where we live and it's, Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's sad, um, but it's just the reality the most you know you think of white males um we do have a lot of female attorneys in the local areas um it's probably it's probably 50 50 between the four counties actually um but you know the other really the only i guess racial diversity you would call it would be you know the local american indian population
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um but other than that we have very very little uh other ethnic uh representation in the local community that's just a fact right um it would it would certainly be nice if we could have more diversity here um it's gonna uh, it, it, take you know probably someone brave to come up and, and do it in the legal community um but i think it can be done um it, you know the, the is as few attorneys we have, a lot of them are young. Um, most of them are under 40
0: mm-hmm. or
1: a lot of them are under 40 here in the local area or in the early 40s. So that's promising um, but it would be it'd be great if we could if we could do something to find more diversity up here.
0: Mm-hmm. Very good uh so judge rahali did you have any final thoughts you'd like to provide to the audience
1: no i uh, just thanks for inviting inviting me to participate this is certainly a topic that i i talked a lot about uh, during my judicial campaign as well um and uh, frankly almost stopped me from running for office but uh and encourage any of your listeners that are uh you know, perhaps uh, thinking about what, you know, their future when they graduate from law school about, you know, coming to this area or another rural area. There's uh, always a lot of need and I think you'll find a very rewarding career and um, I wish everyone that's listening the best of luck and to stay safe.
0: Absolutely. Judge Rahali, we appreciate your time. And if folks are interested in learning more about the legal system in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, of course, you can go to the Michigan State Bar Association, or there's various other county websites that can introduce you to the local areas. Thank you so much, and we will talk to you soon. That's all from us here at the Podvokit. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communication at Loyola University, Chicago. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Olivia Ashe, Emmett Harrington, Leanne Jossend, and Lenny Reinhardt. Our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.